Our Old Testament passage lesson today comes from the book of Zephaniah, or I guess the proper pronunciation is Zephaniah. Listen to a video by a Jewish scholar. That's how he pronounced it. But if I said turn to the book of Zephaniah, you probably would say, is that in the Apocrypha? This is a harsh passage, and, uh, but preceded by what we heard in the call to worship from Paul to the church at Thessalonia. We have to hear these words, but we have to hear these words in light of we know to be the New Testament reality. First chapter of Zephaniah, verse 7, and then we'll move down to 12 through 18. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. This is verse 12 now, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, day of clouds and thick darkness, day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. The fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. With those sobering words, I invite you to stand with me and we'll read again from the book of 1 John, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because 
he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bless you may be seated. I confess this is one of my favorite colics uh, this morning. Why don't we just all say, pray it uh, together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So we are moving ahead in this passage. Sometimes when you read the uh, book of 1 John, we're familiar with these three themes that he has of love, life, and light. Light, love, life. Light, life, light, love. How it doesn't seem to matter too much. The order that they go in, although I suppose if I thought about it enough, I could probably come up with what might be thought of as the correct order. Um, But think of it this way. There's a table, or you go walk into the kitchen, and on the countertop there's a glass, a clear glass, and it's filled about the third of the way with water. And you say, oh, I need to drink. What What do they want you to drink? Like a gallon of water every day about. And so that that's my water, and there... Uh, next to it is uh, maybe you have a bottled water, right? 16, 17 ounces of water. Um, so you pour some more water into the glass out of the bottle. And you fill it up about yet another third. And then you say, uh, I, I need to finish off that bottle of water. So then you pour in the rest of the water and you fill the glass up. You add another third. So you started with a third. You added another third, went to two thirds. How many are tracking with me? And then you added the final bit and the glass is full. You've got another third. You've got three thirds. If you happen to, in the process of picking up the glass and and you say, I'm going to drink this now, and the glass slipped out of your hand onto the floor, and the glass broke, and the water went everywhere, it would be impossible to, to distinguish the first third of water from the second third of water from the third third of water. Don't say that fast. You'll never make it, right? You would say, oh, you wouldn't say, oh, I spilled the first third, the second third, and the third third. <laughs> you would just say, or somebody would come rushing around the corner hearing the breaking glass and say, 
what happened, you idiot? And you would say something like, I, I, I dropped the glass and, and the glass and the water is everywhere. The person coming around to the corner wouldn't say, well, did it, that include the first third that was in that glass that I saw on the counter? Yes, it did. And I, I added a second third and a third third. <laughs> you would just say, I spilled the water. It slipped out of my hand. And in this epistle, we see this where these three themes commingle. And really, this is a, the Trinitarian work. We'll talk about it a little bit this morning, which John emphasizes so much. Here, are these three, we can look at them distinctly. We can separate them in, in the way that we think about it in our minds, but we can, we can never divide them, successfully divide them from one another. We, we can't look at each other as Christians and say, well, she's good with light. He's good with life. They're good with love. I'm not so good with love. No, the glass is full, and they are, there are three distinct subjects that John is talking to us about, but when he goes to pouring them all together, they interpenetrate. They dance around each other. Glinda, Glenn and Linda, Glinda. We were talking about the wind this morning. Everybody got here early at church this morning because the wind was pushing you along in your car. And Linda said, yeah, our leaves are mixing with our neighbor's leaves and they're being blown everywhere. And I said, that's biblical. And that's a, that's a picture of of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't distinguish your leaves from your neighbor's leaves now because in the whirling dervish, when the wind gets to blowing, all aren't you so glad that you don't live at, at the bottom of a cul-de-sac where the whole neighborhood's leaves end up uh, on your lawn. But you wouldn't go out there and say, oh, I can see that. My neighbor's leaves right there. See, they have their name on it. And I'm going to call them up and tell them to get down here and clean this mess up. In the same way, when we read through this epistle, there are passages of perfect clarity where we say to ourselves, oh, he's talking about light, or oh, he's talking about love, or oh, he's talking about life. But then it seems as though he pours them all together into a glass, and we have a difficult time distinguishing one from the other. So we're going to talk a little bit. We were presented with a passage like this, that this morning. So we're going to talk about, I guess we'll name it, the balanced life. So look at this uh, passage with me. We, we started in verse 13 and then we're going to go to 16a. And those designations, when you see somebody give a scriptural reference like that, and sometimes they, they follow it up with the lowercase a, b, c, d, it means that in that verse is kind of long and it can be separated into different parts. So we started in verse 13, and 
we ended up in the middle of verse 16. Keystamaker uh, says that the theme of these uh, verses, verses 13 through 16a in chapter 4, is uh, to abide in God. We've run into this word abide before, but look at it again in this passage. He uses the word in verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us. And then immediately again in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him. In verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. If you start in the middle of verse 16, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So if you have taken to, like I have, here I'll show you my Bible, uh, of underlining the word abide in this epistle, you'll see that it is uh, John's favorite word. Not only does he use it in this epistle, but he uses it explicitly in his gospel. I am the vine, John chapter 15, you are the branches. As the branch, we are supposed to abide, stay connected with, promote a living relationship with the vine. I'm not the vine. He's the vine. I'm the branch. My fruitfulness uh, depends on abiding in, staying connected to, having a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the vine. And Jesus goes on to tell us that his father is the vine uh, tender. He's, he's the vineyard keeper. But then Kiss the Maker says in the middle of verse 16, uh, 16b, uh, there could be a new division where John says God is love. This, he says, and we'll see in a minute, uh, denotes a new section which would follow on through to the end of the chapter, which it ends in verse uh, 21. But he says the theme of this section, 16b through uh, 21, is to live in love. So that kind of gives you why, why we're, we started in verse 13, if you have a English Standard Version Bible, you can see that uh, according to their division, a new uh, paragraph begins in verse 13. Uh, By this we know, and then runs up into the middle of verse 16. So abiding in God is the theme of the first passage, and living in love is the theme of the second passage. Now, I believe that John is just doing this, particularly in this passage that we're looking at this morning, verses 13 through 16a, he's commingled these things, life, love, light. And then there are times in his writing as he speaks to us where he pours some of this water out and we see this kind of interpenetration of these different three themes. Uh, His objective is not to teach this material in kind of a straight line or linear format. He's not really concerned. Actually, 
uh, Near East teaching is much more. You re- remember Slinkies when you were a kid? Slinky, Slinky. Was that how the commercial went? Yep. See, I I got confirmation of that. Remember, and they showed the commercial. It's, you could set it on a step, and it would crawl. Actually, crawl down the step. Uh, if you took a slinky and stretched it out, somebody uh, stood at the top of the steps and somebody at the bottom of the steps, which I as a kid did. I don't know why you would do that. But, um, I saw two kids running the other day with hula hoops, and I thought, wow, what, what a cheap form of entertainment. They can entertain themselves for hours. You could give me a hula hoop nowadays, and I wouldn't know what to do. Uh, but if you stretch that slinky out from the top of the steps to the bottom of the steps, you see it's kind of a spiraling ascent or a spiraling uh, descent. Uh, Near East teaching was much more uh, akin to this spiral movement, around and round. And you eventually ascended, but... Uh, Greek thought, rational thought, Western thought, uh, the thought upon which uh, Western civilization is based on was much more linear. You went from point A to point B and point B to point C, and we were taught that the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line, but how boring, right? Some days you get in the car, uh, especially in pandemic days, And you just say, let's go take a ride. And one of the things that I discovered the last four years in traveling out to Connecticut, that even though I lived there all the way, went to grade school, high school there, um, there were still streets in that town that I never went down. And I would be riding to driving to Home Depot to pick something up and pass by a street, Harrison Road, and, and say, can, I can't believe that I've lived my whole life here and I've never been down that street. When you put a destination in your map thingy on your phone, right, sometimes it presents you with the fastest route. So Western culture says we don't have patience for this kind of ascending spiral the circular method of teaching, but this is what John presents us with. He pours out the glass of water and he says, you see what I'm talking about here? And we're saying, excuse me, John, but all I see is water. And he says, no, 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 no. Remember the third part of the water. And then we added a second third. And then we added, say it with me, a third third. And we're like, I, I, I don't, dis- I can't distinguish them. And he says, exactly. So John has, as we've seen, he has again these three tests. It's, there's a Trinitarian theme throughout the passage. And even in this passage that we'll look at, there's a, a strong emphasis on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we know that he has these three tests. The first is the test of belief. Uh, and in particular, we could, uh, we could make that more specific, the test of proper belief about Jesus Christ. Uh, you must believe, John says, that he came in the flesh. 
We must believe that he is, that, that the Father sent the Son, and that the Son of God is the Savior of the world. So, uh, the test of belief. We've also been disturbed by a, a second test, the test of righteousness. He says, if you've been born of God, remember this passage, if you're born of God, you don't sin. And we struggle with that. That's like a second third of water. Sometimes when you're about to empty the glass, you say, I can't do this. It's like waiting for your electric toothbrush to turn off in the morning. It's like, has somebody hacked into my toothbrush and instead of having a two minute and 15 second brushing, is it going on now for 14 minutes? Doesn't some days it, it feels like that, right? So you take that glass of water and you drink it, you're chugging it, and you're like, I really need to drink some more. And you, you might choke on it a little bit. You might say, oh, going to have to pause this just for a minute till I can get what I got in my mouth down into my stomach. The test of righteousness is like that. It, it can be overwhelming. But we have to let John speak what he believes is to be a proper test for us as Christians. And of course, the third test is the test of love, which we've looked at before and more specifically the last two Sundays dealing with the problem of love. But let me ask this question to you then. Is your life in balance? So what you see in that picture is a picture of what the... uh, engine in my XKE is supposed to look like probably like in the year 2050 or something. Uh, the, the XKE had a six-cylinder inline uh, motor with double overhead cams, and it had three carburetors. Uh, a front, a middle, and a back. And This thing, when it's all polished up, the cam covers, the intake manifold, the tops of the carburetors, it's all out of aluminum. It's supposed to all be polished up. It just, when you open the bonnet, it just takes your breath away. Now cars, cars nowadays have fuel injection, typically. Modern cars last probably 20, 30 years at least, come with fuel injection. Carburetors are done away. Carburetors are inefficient. One of the difficult tasks, if you take an engine all apart, this engine in particular, you rebuild the carburetors, is that you have one carburetor for two cylinders, and there are preliminary settings for richness, for idle, uh, if you read the, the manual, and I can't do it in the best British accent, but there's a little screw with a, with a spring under it. And it says that you have to turn that screw all the way down until the spring is fully compressed, and then you back it off two and a half turns. And you do that to each carburetor. And this, this gets you to the point where hopefully when you add fuel and spark and oxygen through the carburetors that at least the car will start. But it doesn't mean that it's balanced correctly. 
So they make a little tool that you can put on the front of each carburetor that shows how much air the carburetor is sucking in. Uh, they make a tool that will analyze what the burn ratio is in the cylinders. And the point being is that, yes, the car will run if you're uh, impatient, and after 40 years, you want to get in the car and drive it. Yes, the car will drive. It'll sputter a little bit on the initial settings. It may even backfire some, but at least you'll get it to go down the road. But to really get the car, the most performance out of the car, the three carburetors have to be in balance. You see, here again is another Trinitarian lesson. I've heard people say this all the time. You know, I'm really good with doctrine. I, I think doctrine is important. But they don't have much regard for people. <laughs> right? Uh, after I forget what you said, I will long remember the spirit in which you said what you said. So there are people that are wired like that. You know, I'm really into the word. Um, then, then there are people who are really into living the life, being righteous, holiness unto the Lord. Uh, that's their major uh, emphasis. You've run into these people before. You might be one of those people. I don't know, but you're like about, about talking right, doing right, thinking right, dressing right going to the right places, not going, and then there's a whole list of things that you don't do. And then you run into other people who, they're no good with any of that. They don't read their Bible. <laughs> they have no interest in doctrine. It's boring to them. And they're really a little bit loosey-goosey. But, you just always feel better after talking to them. They always seem to have a word of encouragement. They, they're, they're never looking down on folks. So like Christy said this morning, you know, none of, none of us deserve, none of us deserve the vastness which is grace. We're, we're all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Those people have the... They seem to have the ability to love people that maybe the other two types of people, those people that are into the word, those people um, that are into righteousness and holiness, they would, would consider unlovable. Or maybe they would condition their love and say, you know, when you straighten up, when you do the right thing, then uh, when you present evidence enough for me to love you, then I'll, I'll try to love you. Those of us who knew Brother Eddie, we knew that he was a hugger. We knew that it didn't matter what had happened, what had gone on, that when we came through the doors that Brother Eddie was going to be here and he was going to give us, he was going to love on us, sometimes loved on us as a father with discipline. But nonetheless, in the end, when the service was over, we knew that that smile was headed our way. Now, John, it seems in his teaching, because of this kind of circular teaching and this kind of pouring the water into the glass, 
he's really pushing us and asking, it's an unasked question in the text, but where this, and this is why a slow crawl through the scriptures is so beneficial. You end up with conclusions in the text that are not readily obvious. They, they don't come just by rushing through a Bible reading program. He's really asking us the question. He's not wanting us to focus necessarily on any one of the three. Belief, righteousness, uh, love, or I, I believe that they have their corresponding values in life, light, and love. He's really asking us, he's, he's really telling us that if we are to be successful, and I use that not in the 20th century way, but in a biblical way, God spoke to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, if you meditate on these words day and night, then thou shalt have good success. If we are going to be successful as Christians, we're going to have to struggle with how to balance these three things out in our life. We can't just say, for example, I might be tempted just to say, you know what, I'm just going to love everybody. I don't care who they are, what they do, what they believe in, how they live their life. I'm just going to love them unconditionally. And John would say, uh, you need to look at the water on the table again on the countertop and see there's a third, there's a second third, there's a third third. It all commingles together. All right, look, uh, look at this statement by uh, Kiss the Maker. So there's the question. Is your life in balance? You could actually write that at the beginning of First John, right above the, the, the title. Is your life in balance? It's the most difficult task that a Christian will ever undertake. Because it's easy to get good at one, or it's easy to get good at two, but it's most difficult to get three, the three in balance and get good at all three. Now, here's a little bit more legwork in this passage. Look, some translators and commentators mark a new paragraph beginning in the middle of verse 16. Now, if you look in the middle of verse 16, you'll see that John makes a statement, God is love. It's uh, probably the most stunning statement in, in the letter, and Lord willing, uh, we'll continue with that the next time we get together. But Kistemaker says the reason for this division of the chapter is that there is some parallelism regarding the word love in chapter 4, verse 7. Look at, look at verse 7. Beloved, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You can see again the emphasis on love. Look in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, and then again in 16b that begins with God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. These verses, uh, Kiss the Maker says, and the sections they represent develop the theme love, 
Thus, Raymond Brown observes, they both begin and end with an emphasis on love. Now, we would have liked John to make this sermon easier for our kind of rational, uh, straight-line thinking, and for him to start out his letter by saying, look, there are three subjects that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about life. I want to talk to you about light. I want to talk to you about love. Okay, let's, let's begin with the first one. Uh, let's begin with life. Let's be, and then we'll, once we're done with that subject, chapter two, then we'll go on to uh, light. Then we'll go on to love. And we would say that that makes us much easier. We, we have all the, of this same material in the same spot. Uh, we don't do that when we write a letter to someone. We don't say, dear Christy, there are three things that I want to talk to you about. First is this. And then number two is this. Business letters uh, uh, may take on that form, but love letters do not. Because love is messy. And John will talk about these subjects and he keeps pouring water in the glass and then sometimes he just knocks the glass over on the table and we say, well, we got a mess. No, 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 no. (laughs) Why is it a mess just because it's spread out on the counter now and it wasn't a mess when it was in the container? The water still exists. Now, look with me, we're here, first impressions, because we do kind of have an unorganized water-on-the-counter type of situation here. So we're trying to parse our way through this, trying to reach back in the text, trying to reach forward in the text. How do we make sense of what John is saying here? Look back at the, the last verse in chapter 3, um, this, the last sentence of chapter 3, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, if you hold your index finger of your left hand on that verse and then take your index finger of your right hand and put it on verse 13 of chapter 4, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Okay. Go back to the last sentence of chapter three. And by this, we know that he abides, that he abides in us. Go back to verse 13 of chapter four. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Now here. Here is this theme of what happens when the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. It's like pouring more water into a glass of water. It is impossible for a believer to distinguish their spirit from the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, it intermingles, interpenetrates, dances around with like the swirling leaves on a fall day with our spirit. We walk away from a person who is living a life in balance, and what do we we say? That person has a good spirit. We don't say, 
you know, that person has a good dose of Holy Spirit along with their spirit. When the world, when we interact with the world, and this is where we're going to end up with in just a few minutes, the world doesn't look at us as the perfect Christian that we are at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. They don't differentiate. There is no proper or permissible bifurcation of a Christian. You can't divide yourself into the person you are on Sunday mornings from the person that you are on Monday mornings at work. You have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've received some more water that mixes together with your spirit and you present yourself as a whole person. People are supposed to observe us and say, there's something different about that person in a good way. The Holy Spirit indwelling a person, abiding in a person should make their life, make our lives more expansive, more open, more willing. Remember what Jesus said when he said, if someone compels you to go a mile, what are you supposed to do? None of us are doing that. We don't want to do that. I don't want to go. Oh, you're going you're gonna to take my outer garment. So here, let me take my underwear off too, and you can have that. Two-mile Christians. I can guarantee you this. If you have ever benefited from a two-mile Christian, you never forgot that person. Look at these two verses again and the difference in it. By this we know that he abides in us. And then John says in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him. And then he adds, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now, again, let's, let's look at the water that spilled on the countertop this morning. Let's see if we can parse this. Let's see if we can, uh, if we can see some words in the puddle. So I've just put these words in a long list. First of all, as we've seen the word abide, uh, once, twice, three, four, five times, in verses 13 down through uh, 16. We know that that is John's characteristic word that he uses to describe what has happened when Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, comes to live in us. He abides in us. Look at the word know. Verse uh, 13 by this we know, you might want to un underline that word. By this we know uh, that we abide in him and he in us. Uh, look at the word know in verse 16. So, so this is a conclusion now. We have come, this is a process, to what? To know, and then he goes on to say, and to believe. If you back up in the passage again in verse 14, and we have what? 
seen and testify. So you just you can just write these words out in a list. We have seen and testify. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever, what's that word? Confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him. So we have come to know and to believe. We've come to know and to believe. And then now we're, we've, we've kind of crawled back up into the passage. Now we're going to that we're going to crawl forward into the passage a little bit and look at what is coming. He says, God is love in the middle of 16, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There he says it again. By this is love, what? Perfected. So this is something that we, perfection comes through practice. So balancing these three major dominant themes in our life only comes about by failure and success, failure and success. When Rolls and Royce got together to build, their objective was to build the most durable car that the world had ever seen. And they, so they set up test after test after test on their prototypes um, to see how long it would take to, to break, uh, let's say, a front wishbone in a car. And finally, they got, the, they got a car that was tantamount to running its entire life for, I don't know, 100,000 miles over railroad tracks, and nothing fell off the car and nothing broke. In the early days of Rolls and Royce, if you bought one of their cars, the most expensive car in the world, no matter where you were in the world and something broke on that part, they would secretly, without fanfare, send a mechanic to fix it because they didn't want it getting out that a part on their car had broken. Wouldn't you like there to be car dealers and car manufacturers like that nowadays? That was their reputation. When the engine idled, you could stand a nickel on edge on an idling Rolls-Royce engine. How did they get to be that good? How did they get to produce what was then the perfect car? The test, fail, test, fail, test, fail, test, fail, test, fail. But in the process, things got perfected. Look at this last word. This is where we're headed. This is where the process, it started with abiding, knowing, seeing, testifying, confessing, believing, being perfected, and what does it end up with? Confidence. You see that word? In verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence. That is, that word could be test, uh, translated as boldness. One of John's favorite words. Are we living our lives in balance? Are people blown away by the balance of belief, righteousness, and love that is demonstrated, 
Not that we have to make an effort at it. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit takes up residence and co-mingles with our spirit. Are they blown away by this every day? I think we know what the answer to that question is. Here we crawl up. uh, uh, Look in verse 14. Uh, So I'm, I'm just pointing out here. We're we're sitting at the table. The water's about ready to drip off the edge of the table. We're trying to parse this water, this pool of water, and see if there's some some themes, some vocabulary that jumps out. Look at verse 14. Okay, so in verse 13, he says that God has given us of his spirit. You might underline the word spirit, capital S-P-I-R-I-T, And we have seen and testified that the, what? The Father, you you can underline the word Father, has sent his Son, you can underline the word Son, to be the, capital S-A-V-I-O-R, to be the Savior of the world. There it is. There is, in, in one and a half verses, the work of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's pretty explicit. There it is. God has given us of his spirit. He has given us of his spirit. Who does the he refer to? He tells us in verse 14, the he is the father. We have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So salvation is a Trinitarian effort. We are coming to know. We have come to know. In other words, it just doesn't, this balance that we're seeking does not just happen overnight. It is a process in which we are being built up, encouraged, knowing, coming to know what works what doesn't work, what is proper, what is improper. Here's another uh, stunning uh, statement. If you look in verse 17, we're crawling back up into the text again. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence or boldness for the day of judgment. Because, here, here, look at this phrase, as he is, so also are we in this world. Somebody says, you know, my life has been out of balance. It doesn't look like I'm ever going to get it in balance. It always seems as though I'm stubbing my toe over the same issue again and again and again. And John is reminding us, don't worry about the mess on the table, the broken glass, the water, this, the first third, the second third, the third third. <laughs> Don't worry about this. It says, you know what? In a sense, he's saying, you're perfect just the way you are. He looks at us through the blood of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, and he says, I like it. A little rough around the edges here. Don't think I would have done that. I wouldn't have done that. And they know 
now they know after it's happened, they know that I wouldn't have done it that way. But I'm not in the flesh, in the world anymore, outside of them. I am in them, they are in me, and together, all of Jesus, all of me that they're ever going to see is through them. Can I say that I hope you'll never take another drink out of a glass of water and not be able to think about this sermon this morning? I'll close with this. What a statement Keystamaker again makes. When we imitate the love of Jesus, and sometimes it is that in the beginning, be followers of me. As I follow Christ, follow after me, imitate me. Walk this way. Walk like this. Remember? (laughs) Walk like this. Sometimes it is an imitation. Thomas Akempis' book, The Imitation of Christ. I can remember one of the times that I got slapped across the face when I was a kid because my dad and another preacher were working in the kitchen. Uh, I think they were cooking food or prepping food on Saturday for Sunday, meal after church. And they called each other. This is Brother Ellis, my father, and Brother Churchill, the other pastor. They called each other Doc. Hey, Doc. How many more potatoes do we have to peel? (laughs) I was just a a kid, so I decided I was going to join in the fraternity of doctors and address my father and this other preacher as Doc. Inappropriate. Right? And, And in those days, you were signaled, I don't think I'm worse for it, you were signaled you're in a inappropriateness by trust me I never referred to my father or any other preacher as doc ever again in my life I'm not saying that's the way it should be I'm just saying that's the way it was but what was I doing I was as a child I was just imitating and sometimes initially as children Children in, who are living in the light, sometimes we, we do what we do by virtue of imitation. We haven't found out or discovered a deeper motivation for what we're doing other than that. It's not wrong necessarily. It's just that at some point we have to grow up and we have to go beyond that and be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Read it with me. When we imitate the love of Jesus, we need not fear the coming judgment. I'm going to say this, and and maybe this is a conclusion that demonstrates that my life is not in the balance that it should be. I'm going to say this because I believe it's true. When you're faced with the option of hating someone or loving someone, It is never the wrong thing to love that person. To ask yourself, 
if, if, if I'm going to become a practitioner of the imitation of Christ, what would, what would Christ do in this situation? Uh, most of Christ's words of um, correction were, were delivered to people that knew better. But to people who didn't know better, he seemed to be painfully in, in love with those people. The rich young ruler. What was it about him? Text says that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Maybe it would be better to, to say it this way. If you're in a situation where you don't know what to do, whether to hate the person or to love the person, and you, you're caught in the middle of it, it's never wrong to choose the imitation of love. Because we know, we know that when we were enemies with God, that God sent his son in spite of that. We know what can happen in a person's life when they are just loved to death. Amen. Thank you, Father even in the midst of a confusing text, as we now look at the water that spilt on the table, on the countertop, we can draw out with our finger your designs of love. What looks messy to us, what looks like an accident, is actually your masterful design. saying, no, 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 you, you, you can distinguish the three, but you can never separate them. Your life has to be one cohesive reality. You have to live a life of light and love. Help us to be content with the mess, Lord. And yet, in the midst of the mess, committed to parsing out and speaking out the vocabulary of love, we ask it in Jesus' name.